Thank you for praying for me, with me on that. Hey, if you have a Bible, look at Exodus chapter 16. I'm excited about this passage. Exodus chapter 16, and that's where you're going to want to sit today. And while you're turning there, I've been talking to different people throughout the morning to find out what their Thanksgiving is going to look like this week. Man, it is interesting to me how different people celebrate Thanksgiving differently. I mean, there's a lot of people that are not here this morning because they're already on the road to go visit with people, friends, family that don't live in Knoxville. And I was telling Cole this morning, I remember how that all changed when me and my wife, we quit visiting family and we, we stayed. It's because our family got a little bigger, our family got a little older, right? Traditions change as our lives change. So for some of you, Thanksgiving is kind of a sacrosanct day. It's, it's pretty rigid. It doesn't wiggle very much, right? That's just the way you've always known Thanksgiving. For some of you, it is Black Friday Eve, right? A little less special. It's just the day before the real day, right? And I get that. I grew up with Thanksgiving being very traditional in the food category. No wiggle room. Turkey, stuffing, green bean casserole, pumpkin pie, and because we're from Texas, pecan pie, right? It was, that was a fixture that was going to be at every single one. What was not traditional is we would relocate the dining room table from the dining room where it belongs, and we would drag it into the living room, right? Not because we were trying to fit more people around the table, but because we wanted to catch the end of the Packers game and the beginning of the Cowboys game, and the best way to do that is to eat while we're watching football. But that changed because I married a woman who was not so much into football and definitely not into moving the dining room table anywhere. <laughs> so Thanksgiving started to look different, a little less traditional in the food category, a lot less TV, a lot more friends, a lot more family. We do turkey trots in the morning, eat pie for breakfast. It's a different routine, different tradition. Even Canada celebrates their own different way. I was reading this week that they celebrate Thanksgiving in October. Did you know that? And that's because they do everything wrong, right? So whenever you are, whenever you are giving thanks for America, pray for Canada at the same time. <laughs> but I'd like to look today at how the Bible leads you and me and how we manage our thankfulness. I'm using that word on purpose, how we manage our thankfulness. Because no matter what your tradition is on Thanksgiving Day, how do you traditionally handle your heart every day? Are you... Typically, a person that others would say they are a thankful person. That is a person that walks with gratitude. Or would you be considered a grumpy person that grumbles? Right? Who would that, who would you be? Do you give thanks? And not just for epic things or warm and fuzzy things, but do you give thanks for basic things, boring things, average things, obscure, insignificant, normal, seemingly forgettable things? Do you give thanks for those? What does Thanksgiving look like for you when your days are literally forgettable past just a couple weeks? I mean, how many of you remember what you did on Tuesday afternoon three weeks ago? How about this last Tuesday afternoon? Forgettable, right? It's easy for days just to drip by. Even more to the point, how do you manage thankfulness when life itself just feels basic and obscure, insignificant, routine, how hard is giving thanks for you when you wake up and enter your day and you look at your life and it just looks like mediocrity? It feels very average to you. I'm happy that the Bible leads us even in something like this. The Bible's so good. Your Bible is so helpful. 
Stay where you're at in Exodus 16, but in John 21, John finishes his gospel with a peculiar statement, but I get a lot out of it. He says this, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. What this means is that Jesus did a lot of ministry, and the majority of it was never written down. Consider that for a moment. The majority of what Jesus did was never written down. <laughs> Why? Why could they not find the time? I mean, John figured out a way to pocket away some time to write John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. He couldn't, he couldn't come up with 20 more minutes to scribble down more things Jesus did. He could have just called the book that, more things Jesus did, you know, or John chapter 2 or, or something like that. Or, or what, what about the other guys? Luke. Peter, how come they didn't write down more things that Jesus did, right? I mean, we can only speculate on this. And the obvious answer is because God saw fit to only give us what we have. That's the, that's the theological answer for sure. But I wonder if many of the other works of Jesus, as perfect as they are, as gracious as they are, were probably a little bit more ordinary. I don't know this. Like I said, it's speculation. But I just wonder if they were more normal than feeding a 1,000 people or 2,000, or 5,000, or walking on water, raising people from the dead. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I think there's a point in there that there is value to our ordinary days, our obscure ones, the days that are never really going to make it to Instagram, the ones we don't rush to post, because that's the life we really feel like we should be living, right? A postable life, a viral life. We've been groomed to interpret our non-epic days, our obscure days as maybe wasted days. Just meh, right? Definitely not days where we would give thanks in the midst of it all. And I think there are some key strugglers. We all struggle with this, but the key strugglers that I've seen over the years, moms and wives who have found yourself caretakers of families or maybe you were a stay-at-home in some fashion, the more I've done life in the church or have been around women that are in that type of a position, this is something that is a very real struggle for them, looking around and feeling like their life is insignificant, like they're not doing anything to really contribute. Everything is just kind of boring and routine. This Tuesday looks like last Tuesday, like the Tuesday before then, and probably next Tuesday they can predict exactly what it's going to look like. Or men who are locked up in jobs that they weren't really dreaming about whenever they were in high school. It's key struggles, right? So I'd like to look at Thanksgiving for the average person, wondering in their average life if God is even there in their average day. And if God is there, is God good? And I think one of the best ways to really hit this is to kind of, and this is the way I feel about a lot of things that can be kind of confusing, just look at the opposite. What is the opposite of a thankful heart? It's a grumbling heart. It's a discontent heart. Grumbling is just, it's a muted protest of sorts right? A low-grade protest, but it actually says a lot when we grumble, right? Now, we did a real deep dive on grumbling last year on this same week, and I'm not going to do the same deep dive. We're going to look at some different passages as well, but is all grumbling bad? It actually can be confusing for a lot of people. Not all grumbling is bad. You should have an internal protest when you see the dignity of humanity just sinned against. If you see, whether it's an unborn baby or whether it's someone living on the margins or whether it's someone living on the streets, there should be something in us that erupts a little bit when we see injustice, harm, 
we should be able to say, that is not right, and we should complain about it. I also think that complaint is safe and actually healthy if it is in the shape of what we would call a lament. Now, that's what we spent a lot of time on last year talking about, and if you want to know how to develop the spiritual discipline of lament, you can always go back and listen to last year's Thanksgiving week sermon. In fact, we teach lament every time we do the spiritual disciplines class. We teach a class on how to do spiritual disciplines, and lament is one that we practice. We actually practice. Lamenting is good for us. Your, Your book of Psalms and your Bible is full of laments. All a lament is is it is the ability to parse through and work through trouble and challenges and tragedies while at the same time holding on to trust in the Lord. So you're going through a struggle, you have trust in this hand and the tragedy in this hand, and you're able to still talk to the Lord with a deep guttural honesty at the same time. It's not saying everything is fine. It's saying everything is not fine, but I trust, but I love, but you, O Lord, as the psalmist will say a lot of times, Grumbling is different. That just complains about how God is ripping us off. So complaining that lands in trust, that's a lament. Complaining that lands in rebellion, that's grumbling. That's grumbling. And grumbling has a very destructive capacity. It's not a minor issue. It's not a minor issue. In fact, it replaces what should be worship. A thankless heart sits on the throne of what should be thankful And so to build this point, I just want to look at what I think is probably the goofiest and most flagrant account of grumbling in your Bible that I could find, and that's in Exodus 16. So if you have a Bible, look at Exodus 16, and if you don't, it will be up on the screen. By the way, if you want a Bible, we have some free ones on the table outside. If you want a nice leather one with someone else's name on it, you could look in our lost and found and take one of those home. Exodus 16, this is the word of the Lord. For us on this week of Thanksgiving, so they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. He's talking about manna that hasn't started yet, it's about to. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. Okay. Several weeks before this little moment that's going on, several weeks earlier, it's good to remember that these were people that were enslaved to probably the most evil bully character that we have in the Old Testament 
and that of the Pharaoh. They were starving, oppressed, needing saving, hungry for rescue. In fact, it says in the second chapter of that same book that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And so what does he do? He answers. He brings an exodus. He brought them through the Red Sea. And in the same moment that he saves them from slavery, he crushes their bullies and their oppressors. And then he makes them a new nation. See, it's important for you to know that. Before they passed through the sea, there was just a big mob of people, Jacob's family that got out of control, right? Now they're Israel. Now they're Israel, a new identity. Now they're a people. They weren't a people, now they are. And not only that, now God goes before them and leads them. He is a pillar of fire, leads them, provides them water from a rock, food coming down from heaven. No one quite understands it. It's a miracle. He's providing, he's leading, he's guiding, he's protecting, he's covering, he's drawing them close. This is all happening. And here we are weeks later, not years, weeks later, and they are protesting how great they had it when they were slaves. (laughs) They're turning on their leaders even. That's why I love what Moses says here. Hey, we're just a couple of guys. We're just a couple of guys, me and Aaron. We didn't even ask for this job. What are you doing grumbling to us? You're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against God, and he hears it. And they are right. Whenever we grumble, the Lord hears it. That's what it says in James 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is valuable for us today as a church because I think we tend to think that no one hears our silent protesting. Nobody really hears our silent grumbling, even if it's even in our heart. doesn't even make it out to our mouth. We think that it has no consequence because of the way it feels. It feels victimless, inconsequential. I mean, it's, it's almost like a reflex. It just happens. I think the main idea I want you to catch is that grumbling might not be what you think it is, and it is definitely not safe. Grumbling might not be what you think it is, and it is definitely not safe. It is dangerous. I need this passage so bad. These people, they are still damp from the mist that came off of the walls of water as a sea stood up on its edge. And now they're complaining. They're complaining. Not lamenting. They're whining. They're grumpy, and they're grumbling. I mean, it's fast that this happened too. Just in the last chapter, chapter 15, we have this little duet that Moses and Miriam sang together as they came out of the other side of the Red Sea, right, of how great God is, how glorious he is, how much of a great rescuer he is, and all the people of Israel humming along. And then here we are. I've always wondered how you can get there so fast, how you can get from groaning, groaning, to being thankful, to being grumpy and grumbling. But I don't know why It's such a mystery to me. I can do it faster. I don't need a few weeks to do it. I can do it in a few seconds. I am the fastest grumbler in the room. And it's because I've had a lot of practice. I mean, seriously, I think in all of my character, one of the biggest flaws I see in myself is grumbling. It's grumbling. Something I would love to see victory in. Maybe you're like that as well. 
I mean, I could have the greatest devotional time in the morning. I have a pretty sturdy spiritual discipline routine in the mornings. And I have a lot of great moments with the Lord. I can have the best moment in the Lord where I really feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to me through his word, where I see his glory. And I just enjoy what the gospel says to me. And I'm just fascinated with the brilliance of God. And I'm tearing up, or I'm journaling, or I'm, I'm motivated. I feel courageous. I feel rested in the Lord. I could have that moment, go into my truck, sit in my truck, turn the key, and within minutes, maybe seconds, you would hear coming out of my mouth, green means go. Green means go. Green means go. You know, and then be grumpy because they left right at the end of the yellow light, and now I get to sit through another light cycle, right? And I will grumble about that until I get all the way wherever I'm going. You can do this too. It's a fast transition, a seamless transition. Grumbling, it it feels like a, a reflex, like a subconscious reflex. We catch ourselves doing it all the time. Complaining about our bad back, the bad referees, the bad internet, no guacamole, full inbox, Gas price is too high. Car is not making it. Bad drivers, bad service, bad weather, bad in-laws, bad, bad, bad. I can thank God in one second and protest all the inconveniences around me in the very, very next second. So not only do I resonate with these grumpy Israelites, I can disguise it and make it look spiritual, right? I think you can do this too. Hey, I'm just speaking the truth, right? Ever heard that? Hey, guys, sounds like you're griping a little bit. Hey, just speaking the truth. Just calling it like it is, right? Just stating the obvious. I think we can window dress our grumbling to look a lot more righteous than it is, but realistically, our heart knows the truth, does it not? It knows the truth. Listen, grumbling might not be what you think it is, and it is definitely not safe. It is dangerous. It's dangerous. And it's also honest. Doesn't it really reveal what our theology really is when we grumble? Doesn't it really communicate our truest, most genuine thoughts about who God is, about who we are, who other people are? And I think this is where it gets interesting in this passage because you see these thankless hearts, these unthankful hearts, and they are misremembering how things were in the past. They're misinterpreting what their past was, and they're not able to see the value of what's in front of them right there in the moment. They're missing it both. It actually skews reality. When we grumble, it is a skewed, it is a wrong, it is a topsy-turvy way of looking at even reality itself. We see it here. Hey, hey, listen, Moses, Aaron, we had it good before you guys rescued us from paradise. I mean, yeah, it was a hard job, but it was a blue-collar job. We had it going on. We were surrounded by Pots of meat, he says. I don't know what that is, by the way. I usually have my meat on a plate, but I'm all up to try it out of a pot, too. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of meat. Lots of meat, lots of bread. And we were enjoying ourselves. We were minding our own business. And then you come by and you rip it all away from us. (laughs) Listen, even if you didn't grow up in the church, if you're here and you did not grow up in the church, just the stuff that you would hear about the Israelites in Egypt, you know that's not true, right? If you have zero Bible IQ, you know that that's not true. They overappraised their past, they undervalued their present, and they are complaining. And it misrepresents what reality is, because this is what reality is for these people. No more slavery. No more making bricks for another man's monument. No more whips cracking over their head. No more, no, no more watching like friends and family just drop dead from exhaustion. 
Those days are over. They have something very different, and they can't see it. They can't see it in their thankless hearts. Let me ask you, where are you finding yourself grumbling most about today, where you think the Lord has dropped you? Where do you feel like that's happening? Where are you unable to be thankful in your life? I don't know what it is. I will tell you, you cannot see reality correctly right now. You are not able to see reality correctly. Not if you're grumbling about something. Because here we have these people heroically rescued, and now they're complaining about the rescue and the hero. (laughs) Weeks later. Reality is also skewed in another direction as well because they actually think that they're complaining about people. Creation instead of the creator, right? Interesting. Israel thought that they were griping about Moses and Aaron. And I, I don't know, I guess their leadership style. They didn't like their Enneagram number. They didn't like their Myers-Briggs and how they were delivering out their leadership. So they start throwing rocks at them. They start crying out against these people. And it's not them, is it? It's not them. That's what Moses says. Not us. We didn't rescue you from Egypt. Didn't ask for the job. There's a lesson in there for us. Look at when you grumble. Are you not pointing your finger at man or institution or moment or thing and saying that is robbing from me? Is it not always an unjust person or an inefficient system or an inconvenient moment? I think the truth is it's not man or moment that we're really grumbling about, is it? It's God. It's God himself that we're grumbling against. We don't like how he has arranged our lives to unfold. I think he's getting in the way holding us down, oppressing us. This goes all the way back to the garden. Is that not a protest of the heart that we see whenever they pick from the one tree they were told not to pick from? Is there not a piece of what Adam and Eve did that we can look at and say, hey, listen, that looks familiar. It looks like what the human heart does when it says my way is better than your way. Your way is holding me back, right? You are, in fact, bad, and I am good, and my way is better than your way. It goes all the way back. See, grumbling accuses God. It says that we would do things totally different if we were God. It's critiquing God's design. It's looking down on his thought process. It's us saying that our way is healthier than his way. Our way is smarter than his way. Right? I mean, God's way. Think about God. God's way conceived of in the deepest of brilliance, in the deepest of creativity, and in the deepest depth of love. His way might mean that I sit at a red light for three cycles instead of two. And then when I grumble, that is me saying, your way is stupid and my way is better. God's way might mean that I finally, finally get the customer service representative that I've been waiting for and they're they're having a worse day than I'm having. Not really looking to help me out very much at all. You know what grumbling says? God, your way is stupid. My way is better. God's way means that Whenever the weather says I don't get to go out and do what I want, I don't get to go out and swim in a lake or run up a hill or ride my bike or whatever I want to do, my grumbling says, God, your way is stupid. Your way is dumb. And by the way, that last one's a real thing for me. (laughs) It's especially hard for me. Weather is my favorite grumble of all time. Winter is a booger for me. My number one 
goal this winter is to not complain about the weather, and I will need the fullness of the Holy Spirit every moment for me to pull that off, okay? Pray for me, because <laughs> I'm in a family that loves gray skies and rainy days. They love it. They love it. And so when I start complaining about it, oh, who's it going to stop raining? It's like we're Seattle or something, you know? When they hear me start just moping around the house, they'll call me out like that. Now that I've said it publicly, you'll probably catch me a few times too. But this is our selfish protesting. People should work better for me, to my desires. Systems should function a certain way for my benefit. Red lights, weather, buffering symbols, all these things should conform to my particular desires, mine. And we might not catch this happening in the moment right when it's happening, and we might not say it out of our mouths like that, but it is a deep theological statement whenever we grumble. It is a theological statement. But listen, there's good news for grumblers. There's good news. The good news for you is you are free to grumble, and it doesn't affect God's view, love, or approval of you. You're free to grumble. God loves grumblers. If you grumble in this room, you are perfect for the gospel, you are perfect for God, and he is perfect for you. If you grumble all day long, it doesn't affect his approval, his love, and his joy over you, but you're also free to not grumble. You're free to be thankful. You're free to give thanks. I am too. Are we free to lament? Absolutely. Make a practice of it. Execute lamenting as often as you need to. Free to grumble? I mean, the gospel doesn't make any room for it, does it? It doesn't make any room for it. Let me explain. Jesus rescues you and me from a far worse bully in death itself. That's, that's our bully. And then we come out of some waters ourselves, don't we? Not the Red Sea, but we come out of the waters of baptism into a far better nation. Just as Peter says in, in 2 Peter, you used to not even be a people, but now you are. Where did he get that? Got it from the book of Exodus. You see, this picture in Exodus, it's in your Bible for a couple key reasons. One, it is to elevate and draw your attention to how faithful God is to his covenant and his promises. Does God make a promise? He will carry it out. Does God make a covenant with us? He will never fail in that. He is long-suffering. He is, he is able to be trusted in. He is worthy of our faith and our trust. That is, that is one thing. A second thing is he is glorious above all other glories of the earth. He sits second to nobody, not even Pharaoh himself. He is glorious above all that we have ever seen or imagined. Third, the reason Exodus is in your Bible is to prepare hearts for a better Exodus, for a better Jesus that rescues us from a worse taskmaster through different waters where we come out and we are a people. That's why it's in your Bible. That's why it's in your, the entire book of Exodus, it's about Jesus. Now listen, some of you didn't, you didn't grow up reading the Bible that way, and I, I didn't either. But this is, I'm just gonna tell you, this is what Jesus does in Luke 24. Stay where you're at, by the way. In Luke 24, there is this cool little passage where Jesus, he has already died, been buried, resurrected. He's walking in resurrected form, but he's walking in such a way that people don't really like see him. Some sort of a disguise. I don't know. People don't know that it's Jesus in that moment, though. And as he's walking with them, he teaches them through the Old Testament. It says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That means that they're walking along on the road, and Jesus cracks open the Old Testament and gets to this story in Exodus and retells it. But it's not just about Exodus. As good of a story as it is, it's sitting inside of a much bigger story. It's a story about him. 
It's part of our gospel story. God is faithful to rescue people who will grumble, even though he himself did not grumble once. Not once. Not once. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. It's a great passage. Some call it the fifth gospel. He was oppressed, Isaiah says, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Well, he had a right to, though, didn't he? Didn't he have a right to say a thing or two? I mean, if anyone was going to complain or whine, Jesus had full right to do that. He had full right, as he's carrying the cross, as he's bleeding out, he had full right to look around and say, this is rude, rude, everyone's rude. He had full right to look at the elites and the Pharisees as they are gloating, as they are sneering upon him. He had full right to look and talk a little trash. That's what I would have done. I'd been like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, we'll see. You'll find out soon enough. He had the right to do all of that. Complain throw jabs. He didn't do any of it. Not one word. No grumbling. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus saw and trusted God, knew that he was good and knew that he was in control, and knew that this would be the platform that God's glory would be pronounced and elevated before all mankind. And that was satisfying for him. Now, did he lament? Absolutely he did. What did he say from the cross? God, why have you left me? Do you know, by the way, some of you know this, whenever he says that, my God, my God, why have you departed? Why have you left? Why have you forsaken? That is actually the very first line from Psalm 22. He's not just barking. He's using the Psalms as a prayer book. He is praying a lament that David did several hundred years earlier. But here's the unique thing about Psalm 22. It's a lament that ends in celebration and trust and belief. It's, it's got a firm grasp on, this is a horrible moment. And then it's also got a firm grasp on, but you are trustworthy. And your glory is paramount above all things. And I'm satisfied in you, and I trust in you. Psalm 22. It's a lament. It was dripping with trust. But did he complain? No. Not once. And here's the thing. The very same thing that Jesus knew, he taught Paul. Paul, when he's writing to the Roman church in Romans 11, he says, for from him, him meaning God, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Even the cross, even the cross. This means that Jesus did not look at the cross and say, man, I've got some bad luck. It wasn't the result of bad luck or bad men, for that matter. He knew that this was strategically a part of God's architecture and brilliant love for mankind. That's what Jesus knew. That's what Paul knows, that even the cross itself is from God and through God and to God. All things, all things. And the blood that hits the ground underneath that cross, it covers you and me. And it redeems us from being victims of a horrible bully and taskmaster. And listen, if we are free and we're no longer victims, it means we don't have to act like it anymore. Means we're free from grumbling, free from complaining. We are free to be thankful. Grumbling is just simply the anti gospel. It's just saying, God, life is better whenever my way replaces your way. That's what grumbling does. But let me just tighten the screws a little bit, okay? Because thankfulness is unique. Thankfulness is one of those things that you see easily in people whenever things are warm and fuzzy 
around them. Whenever they feel like things are good, it's just easy to give thanks, right? And I'll tell you, even with disciples, Christians who are growing in the Lord, maturing in the Lord, let's say that they love and they enjoy Jesus, I'll say that there are even times to see thanksgiving in their life when they are squeezed into tragedy. You will see it then as well. You know, I think this is because by the power of the Holy Spirit, our senses are heightened a little bit when we're in tragic times, right? We're just a little bit more alert when Junior's in the hospital for three days and the doctors still don't know what's going on. Unemployment is now in its fourth or fifth month and we still don't have a job. Whatever the tragedy is, you name it. Alertness, I feel like, is less distracted by the noise of the world. I think the Holy Spirit allows us to just see a little differently. Because out of this alert state, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we're able to comb through the heart. Comb through our tragedy and see where God is sweet to us. See where God is kind to us. Maybe, maybe the grace that we feel from the Lord is not to enjoy our situation. Maybe the grace we feel from the Lord is to endure the situation, but we still taste of the same grace, and we're still just as thankful. There's this cool passage in 2 Corinthians in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 17. You can stay where you're at. I'm just going to read it to you. It's quick. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now listen, anyone can read that passage. Anyone can read that scripture. I think anyone can grow from it. But whenever I meet somebody who has hit rock bottom, and they could read from that passage and mean it, I see the gospel on display. Whenever I bump into somebody that can read this and lament with the thing that is crushing them and the trust that they have in the Lord, and they know that better days are coming for me, even if it's not in this lifetime, when they really mean it, I see Jesus in that moment. I see the gospel on total display. So I think when we have good things happening, easy to be thankful. I think when rough days come, I think we can get there. But I'd like to talk about the middle days, the average days the ones that drip by. They leak by from day to day and we don't even notice that they're going by because they're obscure, right? I don't think some of you are even grumbling about bad internet. I think some of you are grumbling because of your life. Just your life. Grumbling because of a life full of average days, not able to see any value in any of them, just feel obscure, like God's not present. What is there to be thankful for? He's not here. He's not good. And I know this to be a real struggle for many. I was telling some men at a Bible study on Thursday morning, I think it takes courage to embrace ordinary days. I think it takes courage to embrace what feels like is obscure, looking for where God is good. I think that takes, I think that takes a spiritual attention span that's a little bit longer than two seconds. It's, it's hard. I think it takes energy to look for God being sweet to us when we're eating leftover dinner number 3,022. Whenever we're walking the dog for the 483rd time, to just expect God to be sweet in that moment. Whenever we wake up in our boring life and go to our boring job that we've had for our whole boring life, knowing, expecting, praying that God is going to be very, very sweet to us in that moment. I think there's power in that. There's power in ordinary days if we have the eyes to see what God is doing. There's power. And not just power for you, but power for the people around you too, right? Others. 
cool passage. Paul's doing two things in two different ways to two different churches, but they're very similar in one way. So to the Thessalonian church, he says in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. All. A-L-L. All circumstances. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And then he tells the Philippian church, do all things, A-L-L, all things without grumbling or disputing. Why, Paul? Why be thankful in all things? Why not grumble in anything? Why? He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Listen, there is a danger when we replace our thanks with grumbling. There is a danger. Because not only is Jesus standing at the door as a judge watching our grumbles, so is our neighbor, our spouse, our kids. Others are seeing it as well. And I just, I think theologically it's important to let you know some people have a hard time reading this passage. We don't become blameless, innocent children because we don't grumble, right? That salvation happens by grace, by grace. It is a merit-free adoption that makes us kids of our Father in heaven. What this is describing is how we're seen. So we shine like a light in the middle of a very dark backdrop whenever that very thing that makes our neighbor grumble and struggle and squirm and be thankless draws worship out of us. That stands out. Danger occurs when we look like everybody else, unable to worship whenever life gives us lemons. I mean, grumbling is contagious, if anything. It's not just an anti-gospel, but it's, it's just contagious. Test me in this. Just go out this week and grumble about something. It's like a pheromone you let go. People just kind of sniff it in the air, and then they jump in, and all of a sudden you got a little tribe going on, right? Just try it. Well, I'll tell you another thing about those potholes and all I-40. If you just get off that third, and where are they going to fix those things? Or I heard that Netflix is going to raise their prices again. Well, I'm going to Disney Plus as soon as that happens, you know? Start grumbling and watch what people do. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, and another thing. And another thing. It's contagious. It's contagious. I'm tired of leftovers. Just go for it. See how that works this week. And when we do that, what we show the world is that luck is really what we're aiming for, and luck is something to be gained, and luck is just something to be lost. When good, warm, and fuzzy things happen around us, all we have to do is be thankful. When bad things happen, we're allowed to grumble. I just think the church could do better. I think the church could do a lot better. When the world is squeezed, it will get a cosmic protest. Now, God is ripping us off, but when God's children are squeezed, even in average days, it should be worship that comes from us. And that's very countercultural. And I would say it's a supernatural thing as well. I'll never forget the very first time, forever, I will never forget the very first time I heard with my ears Johnny Tata thank the Lord and be thankful for the wheelchair that she was in. Since she was 18, the prime of her life, a beautiful young woman has an accident, is paralyzed, and sits in a wheelchair that many of us would look at as a prison. I'd still be grumbling about it, probably. It's a common point of grumbling for people. This is what she says. She says, I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh, Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. She says, God shares his joy on his terms only. 
And those terms call for us to suffer, in some measure, like his son, and I'll gladly take it, she says. Friends, that stands out like light against a very, very dark backdrop. And it shows the grandeur of Jesus. I want you to consider this Thursday, people all over the world, or all over America, are going to give thanks in some way, shape, or form. They might do it silently on their own when they're getting ready that, that day. They, they might do it uh, around a table. They might take a moment of silence. They might even go in a circle and everyone say one thing that you're thankful for. And guess what the world, what, this is all you can do if you do not have Jesus. You can only thank for the happy things. Friends, family, food. Aren't those the big three that we hear? Puppies, football. I mean, you just start running out of stuff. Just the warm and fuzzy things. This is what you can't do. Without Jesus, you are unable to say in your boring lives with your obscure days, feeling average and insignificant, without Jesus, you are unable to say, but God, you are beautiful. Your gospel is beautiful. You have won me from my biggest bully. What is true in you, it, it just it, it fascinates me. And you are enough. Can't do that. Can't do that without Jesus. And it's here that we stand out like lights. Whether your life is coming apart or whether your life is just boring, you have the gospel to see and to savor and to be thankful for. To be thankful for. You know, just as I'm wrapping this up, I'm going to put a bow on it here. I do have some tangible application for you. This has been helpful for me. Like I said, I, I, in, in all seriousness, I do think I'm probably one of the worst grumblers in the room. <laughs> okay. There's something that I've been doing the last year and a half or so that's been very helpful for me. It might be a, a spiritual discipline you can use, it, it just as it might be helpful for you. It's got a funny name to it. It's called consolation, desolation. You can call it whatever you want. You call it, I, I don't even really care. It, it's, it's a practice that I do every day, usually in the mornings over the previous day. And I ask myself, over the last 24 hours, where has God been sweet to me? Where has God been sweet to me? Where have I felt most integrated as a human? Where have I felt most authentic? Where have I felt like everything's just going to be okay? Where have I sensed the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? Where have I felt the grace of God? Where have I felt most courageous? Where have I felt the most rest and peace? What is that moment? And then I'll write it down, and I'll pray, and I'll give great thanksgiving for that moment of consolation. Now listen, sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes it's quick. As James says, all good and perfect things come from the Lord. Sometimes it's easy to see that good and perfect thing. Sometimes it takes me 10 minutes because it was just not a great day. And I have to remember, oh, yeah, but, but the Lord did that really cool thing. Man, I didn't see it in the moment, but I see it now, and I'm thankful for it. The more I practice consolation, the more I can start to see it in real time. It sharpens my sense to see where God is when he is there. Okay? Now, the other side to this is the desolation, and that's where I jot down, well, I will review over the last 24 hours where I felt most out of touch with God, the most in turmoil, the most confused, I guess, even the most rebellious. And I will take those moments, I'll repent, I'll lament, right? And then I'm going to thank God for his goodness to failed people. <laughs> as sleazy as I can be, he doesn't love me any less. It gives me a moment to say, God, all things are from you and through you and to you. And I can center myself on that passage. Repent, lament, and give thanks. You should try that. 
Some days it's hard. Some days it's easy. But it sharpens. It sharpens us where we can see things in real time and give thanks right there in the moment. I've watched how my average days are far less average than they used to be. I've watched how even in my obscure moments, I'm incredibly thankful for the presence of the Lord. I've grown more at peace with the fact that my non-epic days are going to be just fine. Because I have a fellowship with a king and a hero and a rescuer that I'm very satisfied in. I think that could be true for all of us. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to lead you into worship here. Ask yourself, are you grumbling about somebody? You need to know you're really not. You're really grumbling against the Lord. Are you grumbling about your life? You need to know that your reality is skewed. Can you trust that God's way is better than your way? Can you trust that? Can you repent for accusing him in your grumbling? There's room to repent here, and there's also room to celebrate in a passage like this because on our most average day, we have something very far from average given to us in a gift of the gospel. And in a a lifetime full of obscurity, we have an eternal place being prepared for us. It's not going to be obscure once we get there. A lot to repent for, a lot to celebrate. And listen, if you're here, you find yourself far from Jesus, still scoping it out, looking at Christianity, examining it, you need to know that when Jesus went to the cross, he went without a word or a grumble. He wasn't mad at you. He wasn't mad at you because you made him go to the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he went to that cross knowing that it would elevate his father's glory and draw you close to him. That was a win-win scenario for him. There was lamenting built in there and great joy built into that moment. You need to know that. It's for the father's glory and it is for your ultimate good. And if you feel like the Holy Spirit is changing your heart today, I want to talk to you before you leave. I want you to find me. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray with you. But let me pray for you as we do worship, as I say often, you know, the, the elements are going to be in the back. We have bread and we have juice. If you are a Christian, even if you're not a legacy person, we, we invite you to take communion just at any point during the next few songs and consider how the word has addressed you, okay? If you're not a Christian today, we just invite you to consider Christ. Consider Christ and what he has done for you and what good news that is for you today. It's the best news you've ever heard today. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being sweet to us and being kind to us. And Lord, I thank you that we have great model in the fact that our hero, our better Moses, that led us through a tougher situation against a tougher bully through deeper waters, he didn't grumble. He lamented, he felt pain, and he didn't grumble. And Lord, I know that we are all in here free to grumble, and we will a million times a day. We will grumble. We're free to do that, and it doesn't affect. You don't start pulling back little dimensions of love from us. It's, we don't lose 1% of your affection every time we grumble. There's no ladder for us to climb. You can't love us any more than you do. So we're free. We're free. We can grumble the rest of our life, and it won't affect it. But, but, but we are free to be thankful. And Lord, I know I'm speaking to a room full of people that it doesn't matter if I think their life is boring or not. They think their life is boring. 
The Lord, even on their average days where they get up and they know that by the end of the day, not going to be anything super meaningful done that day in the world's eyes. And they will struggle, Lord, that you would give them the courage to embrace that day and the courage to look with expectation of what you will do, how you will show your sweetness, how you will give grace to enjoy, endure. So, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to lift us up as a people today, to empower us as a people, to be a thankful people, a thankful people. Well, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.